Our future is closer than we think. Our needs are growing, and so is the demand for energy, including more U.S. oil and natural gas. Our economy, our security, our nation all run on energy. Oil and natural gas make up more than 70% of the energy we use every day. And American energy is produced to among the highest environmental standards in the world. It's time to shine a light on the policies that threaten a reliable energy future. Policies like restricting access to U.S. oil and gas leases, limiting U.S. liquefied natural gas, and canceling pipeline projects. The realities we face are clear. American energy is America's advantage. Tell Washington we need smart policies today to ensure a brighter tomorrow. Visit lightsonenergy.com. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, you guys. What's up? Happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct and welcome to the last episode of 2020. This is going to be the last episode that we do before the new year. We're going to be coming back in 2021 in the first week of it to kick off the new year with a bunch of brand new cases for you guys. So get excited for that. And if you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button wherever you are listening to the podcast, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to it, make sure you hit subscribe. That way you are notified when we come back into the new year with our new episode. I know that this year was filled with a bunch of ups and downs and confusion. It's a year that we've never experienced before, literally ever, but I do want to say thank you for sticking around and for being here week after week and for being so great, not only in just listening to the cases, but actually getting invested in them as well. If you've ever sent in a theory, if you've ever sent in a case request, if you've ever just listened in general, Thank you so much. I truly, truly appreciate it. And I'm super excited to see where Killer Instinct goes in 2021. So with that being said, let's move on and talk about today's case. Today we are talking about Catherine Knight, who is the first Australian woman to be sentenced to life in prison without parole for charges you will soon understand and hear about. Like I said, we're taking a two-week break after this episode, so I thought, why not go out with this one, and hopefully it will hold you guys over until we come back from the new year. This is a case that I always knew the premise of, I had always heard about it, knew the kind of grand scheme of it, however, I had never done my own research enough to fully understand what this case was truly about. And let me tell you, it is not for the weak of stomachs, so big, big warning on that one. This one gets pretty gruesome. 
I don't want to give anything else away. So with that being said, let's just jump right on into it today. Catherine Mary Knight was born on October 24th, 1955 in Tenterfield, Australia. She was born to her parents, Ken Knight and Barbara Rowan. Ken and Barbara had actually met while Barbara was previously married to Ken's co-worker and this is a man named Jack Rowan. So Barbara and Jack were married and living in the town of Aberdeen, which is located in New South Wales with their four children, Patrick, Martin, Neville, and Barry. This was a town where everyone knew everyone, and once Barbara and Ken started having their affair, word traveled fast through the town, and this became a very big deal and a very major scandal. Everyone found out about it, and it caused for Barbara and Ken to move to a different town called Mori. They moved there together. Mori is about a four-hour and ten-minute drive from Aberdeen, so the two of them were relocating pretty far away to start their new life together. They wanted to get as far away from the rumors that were circulating about them as possible. Well, I guess it really wasn't rumors if it was the truth and they were having an affair. So I guess you could say they wanted to get away from the gossip and away from the judgment. And when it came to Barbara's four children that she had previously with Jack, the two oldest ended up living with Jack and then the two youngest ended up moving to to Sydney, Australia to live with their aunt. So Barbara very much was starting a new life and starting over. Her kids weren't living with her. She had this new man in her life. She was leaving her old life behind. And when Barbara and Ken relocated, they ended up having children of their own as well. And this included a set of twin girls named Joy and Catherine, who was the woman we are focusing on today. Catherine was the younger of the twins out of her and Joy, and she was born a half hour after her sister. Then in 1959, when Catherine was only four years old, Jack, who again was Barbara's first husband, had actually died. And when this happened, it caused for the two older sons that were living with him to relocate and move in with their mother, Ken, Catherine, and the other two siblings. So now it's one big blended family, but I do want to talk about Ken for a minute. Ken was known to be an alcoholic, and he would also physically abuse and sexually abuse Barbara, sometimes raping her up to 10 times a day. Now because of this, Barbara ended up being very vocal to her daughters, Joy and Catherine, about the abuse that she was enduring. She would constantly tell her daughters how much she hated sex and hated men. Now, obviously, when you're growing up, hearing that from your mother on a consistent basis is going to affect your mentality. Catherine says that she was told by her mother that if someone tried to have sex with her and she didn't want to or didn't give consent, to quote-unquote, put up with it and stop complaining. Now, while Catherine said that she was never sexually abused by her father, Ken, she said that she was sexually abused by other members of her family that haven't been released until she was about 11 years old. Now, by the time Catherine got to high school and through her high school experience, her classmates describe her as a bully who stood over small children. She was very intimidating. She was very threatening. She was described as a loner and was also said to have assaulted at least one boy at school. 
However, during the times that Catherine was not getting in trouble, she actually was said to be an excellent student. She would even sometimes receive awards for her good behavior, which very much seems contradicting to the description I just gave you. However, she did. Despite this, Catherine ended up dropping out of high school at 15 years old, and she went on to be a cutter in a clothing factory, which essentially is exactly what it sounds like. She would cut up clothes for the manufacturers. Now, after working this job for about a year, she was actually promoted by the factory, and as a promotion gift, the company gifted her a set of butcher knives. And when Catherine received these knives, she ended up hanging them over her bed that way, they would, quote, always be handy if I needed them, end quote. And this was actually a habit and a pattern that she continued throughout her entire life in every home she lived in. She would always have these knives hanging above her bed. Now that we've gone over Catherine's early life and her early years and childhood, let's move on to the next chapter of her life, which is her first marriage. In 1973, Catherine met a 22-year-old man named David Kellett, who at the time was friends with Catherine's brother. So that's how the two of them ended up getting connected. And as far as David's life goes before meeting Catherine, David had witnessed some pretty traumatic events himself. David had previously worked in railway operations, and while on the job one day, David's best friend was actually killed right in front of him. He had also been at the scene during a time where a train had hit a school bus in 1968 that resulted in the death of six children. And right after the accident, David himself actually rescued some of the other children in the bus and removed the bodies. Now, after these two incidents, David turned a lot to alcohol. He started drinking all the time and it eventually caused him to lose his job. When it came to his relationship with Catherine, Catherine definitely was the more dominant out of the two of them. And that also is a pattern that will continue throughout Catherine's relationships. It was said that Catherine would even try and back him up in fights physically and try to physically beat up whoever it was he was getting into a fight with. Catherine and David ended up getting married in 1974 when Catherine was only 19 years old and on the day of their wedding, the two of them arrived to the service on a motorcycle while David was heavily intoxicated. However, regardless of how intoxicated he was, he always remembered the piece of advice that Catherine's own mother gave to him. According to David, Barbara told him, quote, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you, end quote. Imagine, this is Catherine's own mother telling these things to the man that her daughter is about to marry. But Barbara wasn't very far off. On the night of their wedding, Catherine actually attempted to strangle David. And why did she do this, you might be wondering. Well, Catherine strangled David because he had fallen asleep after having sex with her, quote-unquote, only three times. Yes, you heard that right. And this was only the beginning of the downward spiral that was Catherine and David's marriage. Before the birth of their first daughter, Melissa, in May 1976, 
There was one incident where Catherine had struck David over the back of his head with a frying pan after he came home late from a darts competition that he had made the finals in. After being hit over the head with the frying pan, David collapsed in his neighbor's front yard after trying to run away from Catherine. He was then treated for a fractured skull, and the authorities did want to press charges against Catherine for this. However, Catherine was able to convince David to not press any charges against her. Then, shortly after their daughter Melissa was born, David couldn't take the violence anymore, and he ended up leaving Catherine for another woman. He moved to Queensland, and the day after, Catherine was seen taking her daughter for a walk in a stroller and was said to be violently throwing the stroller from side to side while her daughter was inside of it. Now, because of this, she was admitted to the St. Elmo's Hospital, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent the next several weeks recovering from this in the hospital. However, after the several-week treatment, Catherine then took Melissa, her daughter, and placed her on train tracks and left her there. Luckily, Melissa was found by a man who was foraging near the railway line. This man found and rescued Melissa supposedly just minutes before the train was supposed to pass. And right after Catherine had placed Melissa on the tracks and left her there, she actually then went out stole an axe, and went into the town threatening to kill several people there as well. She was arrested for this and taken back to the same St. Elmo's hospital. However, she simply signed herself out the following day, and that was that. There was no social services. There was no jail. There was no nothing. She put her daughter on train tracks. She threatened to kill people with an axe. She was put into the hospital. She signed herself out the next day, and that was that. Now, after all of this had happened, Catherine had made it her mission to go out and find David once she was released from the hospital. She knew he was living in Queensland, and since she couldn't drive, Catherine ended up going into town, finding a woman, an innocent woman, and slashing this woman's face with a knife. It was actually one of the butcher knives that she had been given by her job as a gift for her promotion. She slashed this woman's face and then told her that she needed to drive Catherine to Queensland in order to find David. This woman agreed out of fear, and the two of them began driving to Queensland together. And on the drive over there, this woman was actually very smart, and she stopped off at a service station where she managed to run away and escape from Catherine and tell the employees of the service station what had happened and to call the police. And once Catherine found out that the authorities were on their way, she ended up taking a young boy hostage and held him at knife point at the service station. But luckily, authorities were able to get Catherine away from the boy, arrest her, and admit her to a different psychiatric hospital called the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital, where she disclosed to the nurses that her plan was to murder one of the employees at the service station because they had actually helped David service his car and servicing his car gave him a vehicle to leave her. Catherine also told the nurse that after she planned on killing one of the service workers, her plan was to go to Queensland to kill David and his mother as well. And what's crazy is that when the police were informed of Catherine's plan, they actually told David in order for him to protect himself and to be aware of the situation. However, once he heard this news, he actually left his new girlfriend and moved back to Aberdeen, 
with his mother in order to take care of Catherine, to take care of the woman that just tried to kill him and his mother. But in David's eyes, that was his wife. And on August 9th, 1976, Catherine was released from the hospital and was released into the care of her mother-in-law and David. They all ended up moving to Woodridge, which is located in Brisbane. And while they were there, Catherine ended up getting a job at the Dinmore Meatworks. And for all things considered, their lives seemed relatively normal again. 1976 was a crazy year from them, but they seemed to be getting back to normal and back on their feet. Catherine and David were still legally married. They never ended up getting a divorce when David left her, and the two of them had their second daughter together on March 6, 1980, named Natasha Marie. However, after all of this, just four years later, Catherine ended up leaving David. She left David and moved to her parents' house in Aberdeen, and then the following year, she ended up injuring her back, which resulted in her getting disability pension, which led to the government giving her housing as well, and she was able to get a home in Aberdeen for herself. So the timeline of her first husband, David, just to break it down, it lasted over 10 years, from 1973 to 1984, so over 10 years. And now, with David Kellett being aside, Let's move on to the next relationship that Catherine had, and that is with another man named David. This time, his name is David Saunders. At the time that Catherine met David in 1986, he was a 38-year-old minor, and their relationship moved pretty quickly. Only a couple months after they started dating, David ended up moving in with Catherine and her two daughters. And while he technically had all of his belongings at Catherine's home and was, for all things considered, moved in with Catherine, David still ended up keeping his own apartment that he had previously had before he met Catherine. And this actually ended up serving him well because Catherine would get very very jealous, but also very paranoid at the idea of David having an affair. She would always get jealous whenever he did anything without her. And along with that, she was more so just paranoid because there was no sign ever that David Saunders was cheating on Catherine. So a lot of this was paranoia from her previous relationships. So because of her being paranoid all the time, she would often kick David out of her home, which would then result in him going back to his own apartment, and it was pretty much a tumultuous cycle throughout the entirety of their relationship. And in May of 1987, David had a two-month-old puppy that Catherine ended up slitting the throat of in front of David to show him that this is what would happen to him if he ever had an affair and cheated on her. Then, after slitting the dog's throat, she went over and knocked David unconscious over the head with a frying pan. Now, David and Catherine ended up having their own daughter together, who was born in June 1988, and they named her Sarah. Once Sarah was born, David and Catherine purchased a house together, and Catherine had some pretty interesting interior design choices. She decorated the house through and through with animal skins, skulls, machetes, rakes, pitchforks, horns, and animal traps. Not necessarily the most endearing and homey type of decor. It was said by the people who visited her house that no space was left uncovered, including the ceilings. 
Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Do you ever fantasize about who you'd be if you lived somewhere different? Maybe you'd surf if you lived by the beach. Or maybe if you lived in the city, you would live above a coffee shop and finally be able to write that novel you've always dreamed of. Or if you had a dishwasher, maybe you'd actually be able to start cooking and make a proper dinner at home. With over 1 million available units for rent on Apartments.com, the you abilities are endless. Apartments.com lets you narrow down exactly what you want and when you want it. And with their instant alert, you'll never miss out on seeing what could be your new perfect place. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place to live, whether that's an apartment, a townhome, or even a house, and they can help you find exactly what it is that you're looking for. Visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Our future is closer than we think. Our needs are growing, and so is the demand for energy, including more U.S. oil and natural gas. Our economy our security, our nation, all run on energy. Oil and natural gas make up more than 70% of the energy we use every day. And American energy is produced to among the highest environmental standards in the world. It's time to shine a light on the policies that threaten a reliable energy future. Policies like restricting access to U.S. oil and gas leases, limiting U.S. liquefied natural gas, and canceling pipeline projects. The realities we face are clear. American energy is America's advantage. Tell Washington we need smart policies today to ensure a brighter tomorrow. Visit lightsonenergy.com. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, you guys, welcome back. 
Now, the straw that broke the camel's back in Catherine's relationship with David was an argument that the two of them got in that led to David getting hit in the face with an iron by Catherine before she stabbed him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. After this fight, David ended up moving out of the house, leaving his daughter with Catherine and her sisters, and on the day that David went back to retrieve all of his belongings, he found that Catherine had literally cut up every single piece of clothing that he owned. Now, David at this point was in fear of his life, and because of this, he actually went into hiding, and Catherine tried. She tried to go after him, and she tried looking all over for him. However, everyone that knew David really had his back on this and wouldn't let Catherine know where he was. No one would tell her, which obviously made her even more angry. Then, several months after leaving and after being in hiding, David ended up going back to Catherine's home to visit his daughter, Sarah. And when this happened is when he found out that Catherine had actually put out an AVO order on David. And an AVO stands for Apprehended Violence Order, which essentially is what happens when someone is a victim of domestic violence. You can put out this order against them so they stay away from you. So Catherine puts out the AVO order on David stating that she was actually the victim of his domestic violence outbursts. So that is how he found out about that. And that really is the end of David Saunders chapter in Catherine's case. So now we move on to 1990. And this is when Catherine moves into her new relationship with a man named John Chillingworth. Now this relationship lasted for about three years and the two of them had a son together that they named Eric. And this relationship actually ended in 1993 because Catherine ended up having an affair with a new man. And this man was named John Price. John Charles Thomas Price was born on April 4th, 1955. By the time he met Catherine, he was the father of three children and was described as the type of guy that everyone liked. John's previous marriage had ended in 1988 and it resulted in his daughter living with his ex-wife while his other two children lived with him. Catherine actually moved in with John into his house in 1995, and when they moved in together, John was actually very aware of Catherine's violent past. He knew all about it. However, at first and in the beginning of their relationship, life was going really well for them. John's kids really liked Catherine, and he was making a lot of money at his job where he worked at the local mines. So for all things considered, things were looking pretty good for them. However, the first problem that occurred in John and Catherine's marriage happened in 1998, and this argument stemmed from the fact that John refused to marry Catherine. And just to spite him from this, Catherine actually got John fired from his job after she sent a videotape of him stealing items from his work to his boss. The items that he was stealing were literally just outdated medical kits. However, stealing is stealing and he still got fired from a job that he had been working at for 17 years. Now this obviously infuriated John as it would anyone and he ended up kicking her out and once this happened, Catherine moved back to her home in Aberdeen. And even though they broke up at this point, several months after their breakup, they decided to rekindle their romance and start dating again. But the difference was this time, John did not allow Catherine to move in with him, which only resulted in more arguments. 
Like I said earlier, Catherine was a dominant woman. She liked things done her way or the highway, and she didn't take no for an answer, which is why every time something went south in her mind or she didn't get what she wanted, she would act out erratically and violently. And after restarting their relationship for the second time, their arguments only continued and escalated. And John actually became very isolated from his friends and family who didn't want to be around him if he were to date Catherine. So John's relationship with Catherine definitely had an effect on his life as a total. It wasn't that he was adding this woman into his life who was benefiting him and enhancing his life. It was he was dating a woman who caused him to lose his friends, his family, and really his sanity because he was going crazy over this. So now we move to February in the year 2000, which is crazy if you think about it because this did not happen that long ago. Hearing this case, I feel like it's something that should have happened 50 plus years ago, but we're only talking about 20 years at this time. So starting in February of 2000, Catherine ended up stabbing John in the chest. The stab was not fatal and he was okay. However, this is when he ended up breaking up with Catherine for the second time at this point. On February 29th of that same month, because this was a leap year, February 29th, on his way to work, John had actually stopped at the courthouse to file a proper restraining order against Catherine in hopes that she would stay away from him and his children. And after getting the restraining order, John actually went into work and told his co-workers that if he did not come into work the next day, it was because Catherine had killed him. Obviously, with a statement like that, John's co-workers told him to not go home that night, but John told them that he was worried if he didn't go home, Catherine would go after his children and try to hurt them so he had to. Now, when John got home that day, he was actually surprised to realize that even though Catherine was not physically there, she had sent all of their children off to have a sleepover at a friend's house, so John was the only one in the home that night. He spent the rest of the night at a neighbor's home before he went back to his house and went to bed at about 11 p.m., and then sometime during the middle of the night, Catherine came back into the house. When Catherine got there, John was still sleeping, and according to her, she sat and watched television for a few minutes before jumping into the shower. After she showered, she then woke John up and the two of them had sex before he went back to sleep that night. And the next day, John never made it to work. On March 1st, which was the following day, at about 6 o'clock a.m., the neighbor that John was with the night prior became concerned because John's car was still in the driveway, and this was past the time where he would have usually left for work, and his car wouldn't have been in the driveway. When John didn't come into work that day, a co-worker of his was sent to his home to see what was wrong. The neighbor met the co-worker at the house, and the two of them started knocking on the door. However, that is when they noticed that there seemed to be blood on the front door, and that is when they contacted the police. Authorities got to the home at about 8 o'clock a.m., and they ended up breaking down the back door, and when they did that, they discovered John Price's mutilated body laying in the home. Catherine was also found inside of the home, however, she was in a trance of a state as a result of taking a large number of pills. So she was not coherent, she was on drugs. And according to the autopsy report, 
Catherine had stabbed John 37 times, both in the front and back of his body, but let's discuss the details. And again, I want to warn you, this is not for the weak of stomachs. So, Catherine began stabbing John while he was sleeping, after they had slept together, and once he was woken up by being stabbed, he ended up getting up and started running throughout the home while he was being chased by Catherine. John was leaving bloody handprints on the walls of his house, and it was said that he made it to the front door and possibly even got out of the door trying to run away from her, which is why there was blood evidence on the front door. However, he either fell over or he tripped, which resulted in him being dragged by Catherine back into the home where she stabbed him again and let him bleed out onto the floor. Once he was dead, Catherine then left the home and went to an ATM in Aberdeen and took out $1,000 before returning back home to John's body. Several hours after his murder, Catherine ended up skinning John's entire body and hung the skin from a meat hook which was located on the door to the lounge room in the home. The skin was said to be all in one piece and the stab holes were dripping in blood. It was said that the feet of the skin were dangling and dragging on the ground once it was on the hook. Luckily, the autopsy revealed that John had already died at the time that he was skinned, so he did not feel any of that. He was not alive for any of that. Then, after she skinned him, she ended up decapitating his head and cooked parts of his body. But she didn't just cook his body. She served it as a meal. She served his body parts with a baked potato, pumpkin beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. She set up the plates perfectly and put two place settings at the dinner table and put two name settings as well, one for each of John Price's children. Catherine Knight was preparing to serve the two children that lived with John their own father. Luckily, police stopped her and intervened before the children got home from school that day. And by the time authorities arrived to the home, John's head was found in a pot with vegetables on the stove. The pot was still warm, which told authorities that Catherine had cooked this earlier that morning before they had arrived. Catherine had also left a handwritten note on top of a photograph of John in the house, the note was blood-stained and covered with small pieces of flesh, and the note said, quote, Time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter, end quote. However, I do want to say that all of the accusations that were made in this note about John raping Catherine's daughter were proven to not be true. So just pointing that out. So obviously, Catherine was arrested. She was arrested and initially offered to plead guilty to manslaughter, However, this plea was rejected. She was arraigned on March 2nd, 2001 to the charges of murdering John Price, which she entered a not guilty plea for. Her trial began on October 15th, 2001, and the crime scene photos were so graphic in this case that the judge actually gave the jurors the option of being excused during the showing of the photos because of how horrifying they were. To this day, police officers who were on the scene at the crime have said, quote, it's an image I'm still trying to come to grips with today, end quote. And this is years and years 
after the crimes have occurred. And even though Catherine's legal team was planning on defending her by saying that she had amnesia, even though she was considered sane, so she could stand trial, she was able to stand trial, there were two psychiatrists who concluded that Catherine suffered from borderline personality disorder. Now, just days after the trial began, Catherine ended up actually changing her plea to guilty. However, even though she changed her plea, she refused to accept responsibility for what she did. And at the sentencing, Catherine's lawyers actually requested that Catherine be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts of the case. So basically, to avoid hearing the crimes that she committed. However, this was not allowed and she had to sit through the entire thing. And during the time of the sentencing, when it came to talking about the skinning and decapitation of John, Catherine actually became hysterical and she started bursting out screaming and crying and had to be sedated throughout the rest of it. Catherine Knight was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of ever being released. The judge even wrote on Catherine's case file, quote unquote, to never be released. She will be in prison for the rest of her life and is still alive today. However, she was, like I said, the first Australian woman to be given the sentence of life without the possibility of parole for, in my opinion, I think that that is absolutely correct and that is what should happen and she should never be released from prison ever. But I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say about this case, so please let me know. You can either DM me on the Killer Instinct Instagram, which is just Killer Instinct Podcast, or you can email me at my podcast email, which is killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for an amazing 2020. I know 2020 sucked for so many different reasons and was terrible and awful and unspeakable. However, you guys made my 2020. So thank you for being such a constant. Thank you for being here and listening to the episodes and giving your feedback. I can't wait to kick it off in 2021. We've got a two week break and I will be right back. You won't even really notice that I've been gone. So I'll see you in two weeks. Have a great and safe holiday, whether it's by yourself, with your friends, with your family, Make it safe, make it fun, have a good time, and I will see you in 2021. Sounds kind of crazy, but I'm ready for it. Stay safe, guys.